This episode is sponsored by Clubhouse, project management tools for software teams. Built by proud functional programmers, Clubhouse is used by software engineering organizations around the world and is an ideal planning tool for teams that want to see the big picture. Visit clubhouse.io slash geekery to sign up for a free trial and a $50 credit. Clubhouse. Dream. Develop. Deploy. Prior to here with some conference announcements before we get into this week's episode. Curion is taking place July 18th and 19th in Rome. Curion is a rare event where academic minds responsible for concepts and tools now invaluable to everyday software development, like functional programming or generics in Java, collide with the movers and shakers in the industry that are building next-generation systems and developing software engineering practices central to our entire industry. Visit curry-on.org to find out more and to register, and your ticket is good for all of the European Conference of Object-Oriented Programming as well. Elixir Conference is taking place August 31st through September 2nd in Orlando, Florida. The two days of conference are on September 1st and 2nd, with an optional training day on August 31st. The conference includes five training courses, which provide six hours of hands-on instruction. Visit elixirconf.com to register and to find out more. Full Stack Fest will be held in Barcelona on September 5th through the 9th. It will be comprised of two main blocks with a gap day in between. The full agenda is out, and they will have industry leaders on stage from companies such as Netflix, Microsoft, Spotify, Pusher, Erlang, Twitter, Google, and many more. And make sure to visit fullstackmaster.fullstackfest.com to check out Fullstack Fest's bot that will chat with the community. Visit 2016.fullstackfest.com to find out more and to register. The Erlang User Conference is coming up in Stockholm, Sweden. The conference will be taking place on the 8th and 9th of September, with tutorials on the 7th, and training running the 6th through the 16th of September. With keynotes by Fred Herbert and Simon Peyton Jones, a fireside chat with Jane Wallerud and the Erlang co-inventors Mike Williams, Joe Armstrong, and Robert Verding, and the rest of the speaker lineup can be found on their website as well. All attendees are entitled to participate in complimentary tutorials on the 7th of September, sponsored by Ericsson and Kista. Early bird tickets are now available and get a 10% discount on the conference when you use the code FUNCTIONALGEEKERY10. Visit www erlang-factory.com slash euc2016 to register and to find out more. Strange Loop is sold out, but a number of surrounding events still have tickets available. ElmConf is taking place on September 15th, and tickets and information can be found at elm-conf.us. RacketCon is on September 18th, and tickets and information can be found at con.racket-lang.org. And PWLConf2016 is the first full-day Papers We Love conference, co-located with the pre-conference events at Strange Loop in St. Louis, Missouri, on September 15th. PWLConf will build upon and further the unique experiences that the traditional Papers We Love chapter events provide. The conference intends to bring academia and industry within reach of one another, hoping to foster stronger collaboration and mutual appreciation across respective fields. Tickets to PWLConf are $40 with an optional donation and free if you're a student or a recipient of a Strange Loop Opportunity Grant. Keep an eye out for updates on pwlconf.org as speakers are still being confirmed. Destination Code, a new on-conference starting in Utah, is having its inaugural event this December. The on-conf brings energetic and seasoned mentors to the mountain village of Summit Powder Mountain for sessions and workshops worked in the day between ski sessions, farm-to-table meals, and inspiring getaway. Visit www.destination.codes to find out more. And Codemation is coming up again taking place the 3rd and 4th of November, with tutorials on the 2nd of November, 
Early bird tickets for Codemaster are scheduled to be available until the 21st of July. But beware, the very early bird tickets sold out amazingly fast, literally in a few hours. The call for talks is still open, but only until the 30th of June. Visit Codemesh.io to submit your talks, register, and to sign up for email updates to find out more as information becomes available. And if you know of any other conferences around functional programming, email contact at functionalgeekery.com and I will be happy to announce them. Lastly, if you are enjoying Functional Geekery, please help spread the word. If you would leave a rating and or review on your favorite podcast directory, or even share your favorite episodes on social media, I need your help to spread the word about Functional Geekery. And if there are any guests or topics that you want to hear from or about, please reach out and email guests at functionalgeekery.com and I will put them on my notes for future episode ideas. Thank you for listening and for all your support. Welcome to Functional Geekery. I'm Russ Proctor, and this week we have Mark Seaman. Mark, would you mind telling everyone a little bit about yourself? Well, yeah, hello, and it's good to be on the show. I've been listening for a long time. So, well, yeah, my name is Mark Seaman. I'm in, um, I'm in Denmark, Copenhagen. I've been you know, living there my entire life. And I started out doing software development in general in the late 90s, I think. So I just started out doing nothing that was particularly focused on anything. So I just, you know, picked up whatever was uh, around at that time. And I think I started with a, a dual thing of Visual Basic slash VB script. I did a lot of web development and then I did see some C++ at the same time because I needed to do com objects. So I don't even think that I did object-oriented programming back then, even though that C++ is probably object-oriented. But I didn't really know what I was was doing at all. But gradually, I picked up on this thing, you know, object-oriented programming. And when .NET came out in the early 2000s, I think it was 2002, I actually worked on a place that picked that up right away. So I started doing this .NET thing, and, you know, object orientation was sort of a big thing. And I was curious about it, so I started doing that and read lots of books like the Design Patterns book and so on. So I basically spent an entire decade, you know, grooming my object-oriented design skills. And then in 2010, around that time, I picked up a book by Thomas Petricek, which is called Real World Functional Programming with examples in C-sharp and F-sharp. And I hadn't really heard about functional programming much, but I, you know, I had just heard a little bit about it. So I started reading that. They actually did a, a technical review on it. And it was just like coming home, sort of. At that time, C-sharp already had Link, and I sort of picked up Link and found that that was actually sort of an interesting thing, this whole idea about being able to use functions as arguments and so on and, and do querying over sequences of elements and so on. But that was the first time I actually saw what later on I figured out was actually a pretty fundamental thing of, of functional programming. So I probably had a couple of years of experience with Link in C-sharp, language-integrated query. And then I saw F-sharp in this book of Thomas's uh, that introduced F-sharp. And it was sort of like, uh, like, you know, everything just sort of fell into place at that point. I was kind of like, oh, that's where all of this stuff actually comes from. So I was really excited about discovering this thing of functional programming. And Thomas makes it very clear in his book that it's not anything new and it's not something that he's invented. It's built on pretty old stuff. But I just thought it was very interesting that something had been hidden from me for so long. So I started just being curious about F-sharp, and I thought, well, that's that's pretty interesting. And I, I started playing around with F-sharp for a little while. And actually what happened was that at that time, around 2010, 2011, F-sharp was not a particularly mature language in the sense of the tooling was not quite there. So, well, I think it's unfair to say the language wasn't mature because I think at that time it was, it was already like six years old. But the tooling 
at least compared to what I was used to, I was used to working with C-Sharp, the tooling was not really particularly good. So you could do small things with F-Sharp, but as soon as you wanted to do something that was a little bit more involved, it became very difficult. So I actually ended up going back to C-Sharp and just giving up on F-Sharp because the tooling was not really you know, useful. But I also found that my C-Sharp programming had changed fundamentally just from being exposed to F-Sharp because now I had all of these ideas about immutability and all sorts of ways to actually work with immutability. And you can do that in C-Sharp, but it's just, it requires a lot of boilerplate code to actually make sure that you can do all of these things in C-Sharp, you know, and also have structural equality and all of those things you can get for free in F-Sharp. So I did that for another year, I think, maybe maybe one and a half year, I actually wrote a lot of C-Sharp code, but in a functional style, if you will. And I just got tired of writing all of that boilerplate code, and I just decided, now I'm just going to bite the bullet and actually just take the pain of the tooling that wasn't up to snuff back then. And then it turned out that when I went back to F-Sharp there in 2012, 13-ish, that time frame, then tooling had actually improved quite a lot. So I went back and, you know, I stayed there. <laughs> so I still do some C-sharp development, mainly because that's still what people pay me to do. But I'm actually at the moment doing a little job with F-sharp coding for money. So that happens as well. <laughs> so that's really exciting to be able to do that now. So that was a long story. <laughs> so I just found, you know, F-sharp very interesting in the sense that it felt like coming home, if you will. You say it felt like coming home, and I know <laughs> in the .NET background, even before the link and some of that stuff that started making their way into C-sharp, you had Eric Evans with Domain-Driven Design and Martin Fowler and some of these other people pushing for some of the concepts that seem to translate easily into functional programming after you've been exposed to functional programming, things like value objects, which represent your immutable objects that you don't actually change, and then some of those concepts and you start to add in link and things like that. So did you find some of that stuff helped you with the transition or you didn't put the pieces together until you came back from F sharp into C sharp or did that book kind of help you realize some of that stuff? Were these intuitions that you were starting to feel already and the F sharp of coming home was, I kind of had this gut from doing all this stuff and this actually solidifies that feeling or was there something else going on? What was that? transition and do you know why it felt like coming home <laughs> yeah so that's actually a, that's a pretty interesting question and i'm not sure that i know the answer to that because now i think that i know the answer to that question is today but i'm not actually sure that that was the reason why originally it clicked to me back then because i've been doing a lot of studying reading martin fowler books and eric evans's book and robert c martin and all that stuff and i've been doing test driven development since 2003 I did a lot of things that wasn't originally very a very Microsofty thing to do, if you will. I was always interested in what was going on on the other side. But all of that was still very object-oriented. When you read Eric Evans's book, it's very object-oriented. And all Fowler's writings are very object-oriented and so on. And they don't really talk that much about functional programming. Well, yes, they do mention value objects as a design pattern here and there. But it, it's never really put into a context of being associated with functional programming, not, not the sources that I read anyway. So I don't know if that was actually the reason why it clicked. I think the reason why it clicked was just that I was 
constantly, continuously striving to make my code clearer and have good separation of concerns and so on. And I've also read Robert C. Martin's Clean Code book. And I think probably, I think one of the things that probably clicked with me was just the approach to functional programming that sort of, you know, enable you to separate concerns better. Because when you start to think about how, how to deal with immutable data, you have to model your side effects in a different way. So this whole idea about separating side effects from queries pretty much just goes back to this whole idea about command query separation. And it's just if you're already chasing command query separation, which is something that Bertrand Meyer talks about in 1985 in his book, if you're chasing that already and then you're encountering functional programming and you're seeing how much stuff you can actually do with immutable data, you know, just by querying, I think that just, you know, things just start to fall into place. But I don't think it was that didn't click for me immediately. It's just that I think I was already on the path of trying to do more stuff with Link and just coming, you know, seeing where all of that came from made me realize that there's actually a much deeper concept, you know, or way of thinking behind all of this that, you know, is worth exploring. So that's actually why I started to do that, just because I think I was just originally lured in by this whole idea about having your side effects separated from all of the other stuff that you're doing. It just makes it much easier to actually reason about your code. That's a catchphrase you always hear functional programmers talk about, you know, reasoning about the code. And I think I just needed that because I felt that programming was too hard and functional programming just made it easier because you can easily reason about the things in functional programming because there's a lot of things that can't happen. And I think one of the problems that lots of people have with object-oriented programming today, particularly with the languages that, that most people use, like C Sharp and, and Java and so on, is that there's so much stuff that can go wrong all the time. You can have null references. You can have side effects that change the behavior of the system while you're not looking and, you know, threats and all of those things. And there's just so much to keep track of that your brain can't really handle that. So I think in that sense, that was probably one of the reasons why it started to click for me because I just saw a way of separating concerns better so that I could concentrate on one thing at a time. And that just made it much easier to actually think about, okay, how do we actually design this code? How do we test it? So testability was always a thing that really interested me, you know, and it was always difficult to do back, at least back then, you know, Microsoft was not particularly good at creating APIs that were particularly testable. So you always struggled when there was a new technology coming out from Microsoft, figuring out, okay, how do I actually unit test against this thing? Because everything is sealed and locked down and not really extensible in any way. Yeah, so so I don't know that it originally clicked for me, but you know, later on, I've been thinking a lot about this for years now. And one of the things that started to click for me was that functional programming is imminently testable. And I think the original reason why that actually clicked for me was probably one of the, um, you know, an episode that you had with Jessica Kerr, like three years ago, probably a long time ago. But she talked about something she calls isolation, which is basically this concept of a well-designed function, having no implicit knowledge about the external world, everything that you know, a function needs to know about the external world is passed in as arguments to that function. And that just I thought that was very interesting because when we talk about unit testing and automated testing, what we often talk about is that a unit test is an automated test of a unit in isolation of its dependencies. And that word isolation is actually the same word that Jessica Kerr talks about. So it follows that any well-designed function is easy to unit test because everything it needs 
must be passed in through arguments arguments to the function and also because you don't really have any side effects or by default don't have any side effects you can just verify that the result you got back was actually the result that you expected because you have this referential transparency so once you start thinking about these things you figure out that functional programming is inherently testable which i found was a very interesting benefit of doing functional programming that I probably didn't originally identify that that was one of the reasons I found functional programming interesting, but which I've, you know, since then figured out that that's really interesting because we're always struggling in object-oriented programming. We're always struggling with this whole problem of what David Heinemeyer Hansen calls test-induced damage. So DHH had this blog post a couple of years ago where he said, you know, TDD is dead, long-live testing. And basically what he said was that here's an example of what object-oriented code looks like when it's being done with test-driven development. And basically he says, well, no one would write code like that unless it was because of testing. So he thinks that the design of the code becomes damaged by this process of testing. So basically he concludes then that he says, well, test-driven development leads to test-induced damage. But I think what he's probably forgetting there where I disagree with him is that I'm more or less beginning to believe that it's not test-driven development that leads to test-induced damage. It's the combination of test-driven development and object-oriented design that's sort of very, very difficult to reconcile those two things. But on the other hand, if you do test-driven development with functional programming, there's no conflict. So you don't have to reconcile two different goals these goals are actually aligned with with each other. So you write nice functional code, and it also turns out that it's very easy to test. So that's another reason why I, I began to find functional programming more and more interesting, because it's not even a quality of F-sharp particularly. You can see that in, in all sorts of functional languages, whether that be F-sharp or Haskell or Clojure or whatever. They're pretty easy to test. But I think that's very interesting. So you're saying you're not a fan of the 50 lines of setup of mocks and stubs spread out through a bunch <laughs> of nested contexts just to be able to test one method? I am not a fan of that, you know, and, and it's not that I haven't written my fair share of blog posts and tutorials and so on on how to do that. And basically, I think in object-oriented design, there are not particularly many other ways you can do that. And that's basically what you need to do in object-oriented design. So I'm not particularly pointing fingers at setting up mock objects and, and doing all of those things, because if you if you're forced for some reason to work with the object oriented design, that's probably also what I would do, even though I try to minimize all of that stuff. But I'm not a fan of it, no, because it's, you know, once you see what the alternative is, once you've tried to do it in F sharp or in Haskell or whatever, you learn that it can be much easier and uh, and then you don't want to then you don't want to go back. Yeah. So for a long time, I just believed that that was as difficult as, as programming actually had to be. Then all of a sudden, I discovered a functional programming, and it turned out that some of those things that were really difficult actually turned out that if you change your perspective, they become much easier. And there's probably some things that become harder. I don't know. There probably is. <laughs> but a lot of the pain of doing object-oriented design goes away, and it's probably being replaced with a new pain. But right now, I'm still having a blast. I'm only five years into my journey of functional programming, and I'm, I'm not getting tired of it yet, but it's probably going to happen someday, and I'll find something new and shiny. I don't know. <laughs> maybe, maybe not. I don't. <laughs> we'll see about that. And that seems pretty in line with at least what I've found personally with between the testing and, as you were talking about, 
the Fowler and the Evans and Robert C. Martin, even though they didn't explicitly call it functional programming, just some of those principles and Bertrand Meyer and things like single responsibility and Michael Feathers' book, Working Effectively with Legacy Code, where he talks about finding the seams in your system. And it's one of those things, as you were saying, it seemed like because these functions are isolated, they naturally have the seams where you can just change that seam out and you have these nice breakpoints that I can swap this function out with another one, or I can take any of these functions because you have the nice seams there. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And also one of the things that's probably, I'm not sure that that's particularly a functional programming thing or whether that's just a language thing, but most functional languages, you can just replace one function with another one. And that's sort of like an impromptu interface right there, sort of like an anonymous interface where, you know, in C Sharp and in Java, you have to explicitly declare, here's an interface on abstract base class. And then once you've declared the type, you can start to do types that actually derive from that. So just the whole, you know, that's a lot of, of boilerplate you need to do in C Sharp and Java just to be able to do basic polymorphism, if you will. Whereas in functional programming, you can just click those things together and you don't really have to have that overhead of actually defining all of those types just to be able to decouple things, just to be able to have those seams. So that's sort of a pretty interesting thing in itself also. One of the things that I'm beginning to be more interested in these days is... Um, you know, a couple of years ago, I think I was starting to wonder, am I actually writing good F-sharp code or am I just doing something that's not really enlightened, but, you know, just sort of compiles or am I actually doing something right? So I started to wonder, you know, is this really proper functional design, what I'm doing here, or am I still stuck in my habits from back when I worked a lot with C-sharp and so on? So, so that's one of the reasons why I decided to pick up Haskell, basically just to figure out. Haskell forces you to be functional because all functions are pure by default and there is no object-oriented fallback. In F-sharp, you always have this option of falling back to doing actually objects and designing interfaces and so on because F-sharp is a multi-paradigmatic multi-paradigmatic language. That's a difficult word to say for a Dane. But anyway, I really wanted to see, well, what does pure functional programming actually look like? So that's why I started up, uh, you know, picking up I decided to try to teach myself Haskell. So I've been doing that for about a year now, just doing an hour of Haskell study every morning. And it's been quite interesting. And I can't say that learning Haskell is the easiest thing I've ever done. But I also think it I really feel how it changes the way that I approach and think about things. So because I, I did that, I also started to look into a little bit into category theory. And not to make this a long discussion about category theory, but I've always been curious about what are the general principles that are behind things. And I think that was probably one of the reasons why I was originally drawn towards F-sharp, because just that revelation, that link was not something that that Arnas Heidsberg had invented, but it was actually something that was based on a much older principle and a family of languages or an entire family of way of thinking about programming in general. That just gave me a glimpse that there's a new world out there that I wasn't aware of back then. And I'm always drawn towards finding out what are the universal principles that basically make the world work the way that it works. So that's probably why, you know, I always uh, also started to look into category theory just to, to understand, just to get a glimpse of what is it. So some of the things that you pick up from category theory and just from Haskell also is that it seems like that there are some abstractions that are sort of universal, if you will. So one thing is just how you design types, but also this whole idea about having 
functions that sort of belong to the same family. So we probably can't really keep beating around the bush there. We, we probably need to say Fanta and Mona at some, some time pretty soon anyway. But I just think it's interesting because one of the, the problems that I've always seen that people are struggling with in you know, a normal enterprise development is that abstractions are really, really difficult for people to pick up. So particularly these days where it seems like that, that um, you know, test-driven development has won in the sense that now everyone is convinced that they need to do test-driven development. Um, you will be hard-pressed to find a company, at least here in, in Copenhagen, Denmark, where I live, where they don't do test-driven development. Everyone does that now. At least they say they do. But what I see that teams often do when they do test-driven development is that they struggle with introducing good abstractions. So instead of actually introducing good abstractions, what often happens is that they just slap on some interfaces wherever they need to introduce some of those seams you talked about. But it turns out that you can define a, a seam, um, but if, if it's not a natural abstraction, what often happens is that the code becomes more obscure. So one of my favorite definitions of an abstraction comes from Robert C. Martin again. And Robert C. Martin says that, you know, the definition of an abstraction is something that amplifies the essentials and eliminates the irrelevant. And most interfaces that I see in C-sharp don't do that. Often they do the exact opposite thing where they hide the essentials and they amplify the irrelevant, which basically means that now people are chasing all over their code base, trying to figure out, here's an interface, my class is talking to an interface. But what they really want to know is which concrete class implements that interface, because there's only going to be one class that implements that interface. So they're always chasing which class is actually implementing this interface. And I think that's a symptom of the interface not really being a proper abstraction because it's not really, it's a one-off thing. It's not really a universal thing that really tells you anything. It's just a seam, if you will, but it's not something that is actually, it doesn't amplify the essential and, and eliminates the irrelevant. It's sort of just there. And often it obscures what's on the other, other side. So you can't really see through it. But then again, if you start to look at, for example, the type classes that come with Haskell, like monads and functors and so on, it seems like a lot of these things are abstractions that are just sort of there, and they just seem to emanate from this mathematical world, which is sort of like almost platonic in the way that there are ideal shapes in the world, and you can sort of take those ideal shapes and ideas and apply them to various things that then you can go and use for real. And I'm not really saying that I have a lot of deep experience doing that yet, but I'm just beginning to see the outline of doing something like that. And that really makes me excited, this whole thought of there probably are some universal abstractions that you can take and apply to even your most mundane enterprise, boring line of business application, and then get some good abstractions out of that. It's something you can actually test and you can model your business domain in that way. I think that's really, really interesting. And something that I'm looking forward to work with in the next couple of years, because I feel that I'm only getting started on that at the moment. But yeah, that's a long journey ahead of me still. It's going to be exciting. And that was kind of, you mentioned the interfaces and yeah. the abstractions. And I don't know if this is an accurate thing as far as my realization came within the past number of months, six months or so, maybe if that, but that functor and applicative and monad as I started looking in, more into PureScript and a little bit of Haskell and some of this stuff, is really just those algebraic data types are not the data types 
that are the concrete instances, but they're the interfaces or abstract classes, essentially, because as far as I've heard people call and say it's not mappable, that functor represents in the .NET ecosystem or a Java ecosystem would be something with an interface of I mappable, where it's got a map function on it. And then you say, this thing has this contract, and you define that contract in the same way that you would in the .NET or Java or whatever, or Ruby that says, this thing is an enumerable. I can iterate right. over our items. And then that essentially functor, monad, applicative, every other variation of those become just variations of those interfaces that build on top of each other and essentially have some sort of quote-unquote inheritance hierarchy to use a metaphor from the object-oriented language. Right. Yeah, but it's just like every time I try to go back to something like C-sharp, for example, or just F-sharp, because F-sharp still runs on the .NET runtime, and I start thinking about, okay, so a functor, and I think we probably should just say what a functor is because I, your podcast actually talks about a lot of different things. So you, we may have listeners here that are more into the untyped stuff of Clojure and Erlang and things like that. So, But basically a functor, the way that I understand it, is just a type and an associated function that, that can map a value of that type into another type that somehow belongs in the same category of things. That's really weird. But an example is basic functor is that you have a list of stuff and then you can map that list of stuff into a, a list of some other stuff. So you can map a list of integers into a list of strings, for example. And even C-sharp developers or Java developers ought to be familiar with that. But then it turns out that you have in F-sharp and in Haskell and so on, you have this thing called an option or maybe depending on the language. And it turns out you can also take an option or maybe and map that into an option or maybe of a different type. So if you have an option of integer, you can map that into an option of string. And it turns out you can do that with an either as well. So there are lots of things where you can map one value or one stream of values into a different type of that category of things. But where it starts falling apart, though, then is that, you know, when you try to map that back into something that is object oriented, you figure out, or at least I have really been successful in doing that, because as you say, it's sort of like you need to define some sort of iMappable interface. But the problem with that is that the iMappable interface needs to define a map function. But then you have to say, well, but you can map any type that is mappable but the type that's mappable, the method doesn't belong to the type itself. So that's the difference between in, in Haskell, for example, you have the functor type class. And basically it says, well, any type that an if map function can be defined is part of that type class. But that also means that you can sort of define that if map function after the fact. So you can define the type independently of the function. And that's what's becoming really difficult in object-oriented design. So maybe I just haven't really um, figured out how to do that yet. But, you know, I haven't really seen a good example of a functor or a monad interface, even a generic one in C-sharp. And we don't have it in F-sharp also. So I suspect that there is some deep reason that I can't really put my finger on exactly why that is yet. But there's some deeper underlying reason why somehow it doesn't really map to the .NET runtime and probably also not directly on the JVM. I don't know. I don't know enough about the JVM, but somehow it seems like it's not really possible to model that sort of higher kind of type on the .NET platform. But I can't really put my finger on exactly why that is yet. So I'm rambling a little bit here, I'm, I'm afraid. But it's, it's sort of 
seems a little bit difficult. You know, you can define your select function on streams like I enumerable of T in C sharp. But then if you want to do the same thing with a maybe or with an either or whatever, you sort of have to define a new interface to do that. You can't just click it in, if you will. And I, I'm sure that someone who has been thinking more about this will actually be able to tell me exactly why it is that you can't do that. Don Syme can probably tell me, you know, why can't we have type classes in F-sharp? But yeah, I can't really put my finger exactly on why that is, but I haven't really seen a successful attempt at, at doing that yet. So it becomes, you know, an F-sharp, for example, it becomes ad hoc. You have lists.map and array.map and you have, you know, option.map and, and so on. But they're all, they look like they're the same, but they're actually, their types are different. You know, list.map is not the same as seek.map. It's not the same as option.map. They don't belong to the same type. And I don't know that I've seen it applied either, but that was kind of why I was saying it's probably a faulty metaphor, but <laughs> that's the closest I've come to actually having a picture that is potentially explainable of that these aren't necessarily anything that's inherently special. They're just the application of the interfaces that you would have in the .NET or Java and Ruby or whatever applied to functional programming, where because it's a function and because it's a type, it exists outside of its type, like every other function exists outside of a type. So you get that benefit of here's a generic quote unquote interface right. that I can apply anything to if it meets that contract. Right. Yeah. Yeah. And what I think is is interesting about the combination of category theory and thinking about the way that Haskell approaches this is the fact that you can take an abstraction that's already defined, very basic abstraction like a functor or a monad, and then you can say, well, this abstraction already exists, and it exists as a type or a type class. But then, you know, I can take my own type that I just defined to model my boring line of business problem domain, and I can just plug that in and make it part of that overall universal abstraction, if you will. I think that's really interesting that that is possible to do. And you can do that in F-sharp as well, but it becomes a little bit more ad hoc because your option map is not the same as list map and so on. So even if you come up with your own domain-specific type, then you need to define a map on top of that domain-specific type. But that's not really the same map as list map or option map. So you can do it in F-sharp, but it's ad hoc. It's not really the same type. So I, I just think it's very fascinating that, that in Haskell, it is actually the same type. And you can pluck your own stuff into something that seems like it's universal. It's a universal abstraction. And once you, you know, start understanding those universal abstractions, they're just all over the place. And often it turns out that, well, you don't really have to even define it because basically the Haskell compiler can just figure it out for you. So you can just say, well, this type just needs to be part of the monad type class. You just say that by one line and then bang, you have something that's part of the monad type class. And that's that's pretty interesting. And it goes even further because then you start to look at stacking those things on top of each other. So you say, well, I have a, an option inside of an either, whatever that is. And then you can just, you know, stack those monads on top of each other. And that, again, is something that actually requires a little bit of boilerplate in F-sharp. So you can do that in F-sharp, but you sort of need to do a little bit of coding yourself saying, well, there's actually, you know, an async inside of an option here or the other way around. And you now you have to define the boilerplate to make those two things combine. Whereas in Haskell, you just say, well, okay. Here's something that's asynchronous or the IO monad or whatever. And I want to have an either inside of that. You just, that's built into the language because that's how it composes. Yeah, I'm rambling here, but I just, you know, I think it's really interesting that these things just sort of click together and basically you can just play around with the types 
of something that you're working with. And when you get it to click together and the types fit together and, and everything compiles, you're probably pretty sure that, yeah, this is probably what I wanted to do. I was listening to, um, you had an episode about Idris with Edwin Brady, and he talked about designing with pipes. So I haven't looked into Idris yet. That's on my to-do list. But what he said about designing with types really resonated a lot with how I think about things as well, because I find that this whole idea about using algebraic data types really enabled me to start thinking about and modeling what does the domain actually look like. And once I figure out what it looks like, I often also just have a pretty good idea about, okay, I need, you know, I need to have a value of this type. And from that starting point, I need to get a value of another type. So basically, I have a function that needs to take this type as input and produce another type as output. And now the quest is only to make that function actually to go from source to destination. And once you have something that actually compiles, you probably have something that works. I think that's a pretty interesting thing to be able to do. It seems like the stronger the type system becomes, the more you actually get out of it in the sense that you get some guidance from the type system. And people will probably say, if they're not used to that sort of working with the type system, they probably think that the type system fights them all the way because getting Haskell to compile is actually pretty difficult at times. So it's not that it's it's super easy, but it's just that my experience with doing those things is that once it actually compiles, it's probably okay. Well, you still need to test it. So I'm not saying you shouldn't unit test it or anything else, but it's just that there's a lot of things that basically once it compiles, it's, there's a lot of things that just, you know, sort of can only be in that particular way. So there's not a lot of testing that you need to do. You still need to do some testing. but And I've been hearing lots of other people basically saying the same thing. So so I'm, I'm sort of interested in looking into Idris when I have the time, because it seems to me that I've more and more begun to think about type systems as being on a sort of a um, spectrum, if you will, with some languages having stronger types than other languages. And, you know, in my mind, anyway, we have C-sharp is sort of not as strongly typed as F-sharp, which is, again, not Haskell is a little bit more strongly typed than F-sharp. And it looks to me that, again, you know, that Idris is even more strongly typed than Haskell because there are things you can say with the type system in Idris that you can't in Haskell. To me, that's, that is very attractive. So, so that's something that I need to look into for in the future, but haven't been able to do that so far. But just getting the compiler to do all of these things, all that thinking for me, I, I find really, really attractive. So we've been talking about your F-sharp and evolution into looking into Haskell, and you've talked about trying to feed some of those higher kind of types, algebraic data types, back in. So if we go back to F-sharp a little bit too, and taking that back to C-sharp, what are some of those things that you've found have propagated through, I guess, F-sharp to C-sharp, and then Haskell to F-sharp, or even Haskell back to C-sharp, when you have to go and do some C-sharp, because... That's the existing code base. That's what you got to work in when you go get a job. And some of the stuff hasn't been ported over to F-sharp yet, or you're just writing your tests in F-sharp or doing whatever you can, but they're still the existing C-sharp. So what are some of those things that have come back from your learning of F-sharp and then now your learning of Haskell? Right. Okay. So let's start with just my experience doing F-sharp and then how that influences my C-sharp. Because that was the first thing that happened to me. And basically what happened then was that I started to do all my C-sharp code as much as possible using immutable data structures. So what I would often do and what I still do in C-sharp today is that every time I need to define a new class that does something, 
what I often do is that I make it immutable. And that also means that if I really want it, want it to behave like a record in F sharp, for example, I also, not only do I need to make it immutable, but I also need to give it structural equality, which means, you know, I need to overwrite the equals methods in, in order to make sure that I can compare two values of the same type and actually get the result true back if all the constituent values are the same. Because that gives me a lot of benefits from being able to compare things, particularly when you do unit testing, because basically everything that unit testing boils down to is that you do something with your system under test, and then you compare the expected outcome to the actual outcome. And often that comparison is an equality comparison. You're saying, well, this is what I expected happened, and this is what actually happened, and I, I want to compare those two values, if you will. And what I often see people struggling with when they do C-sharp-based unit testing, and probably also with Java, is that if they have a value that's not a flat value, that's actually a hierarchical structure, uh, that's a difficult word to say as well. But if there is a little bit of nesting in the values that they want to assert against, what I often see people struggling with in, in C-sharp is that they say, well, okay, and that you know sub-value of the object should be equal to that sub-value of the expected outcome and so on. So they have big blocks of assertions that try to compare a deep object graph to another deep object graph. And then once you start having structural equality, for example, that just means that you can take two objects and say, well, is that object actually equal to that other object? And boom, even if you have something that is nested, if you have structural equality all the way down, you can just take two of those things and compare them to the, each other. And all of a sudden, you know, all your unit tests basically just become, is the expected outcome equal to the actual outcome, true or false? So that's a huge benefit that you can take and backport into C-sharp. The problem is that it takes a lot of boilerplate because every time you need to now define a new class in C-sharp, you need to make it immutable, so you need to define a constructor that takes in the constituent values in the constructor and expose those as get-only properties, and then you need to overwrite equals method in order to give it structural equality, and that means you also need to overwrite get hash code and so on. So it's not that you can't do it, and that's actually how F-sharp records compile to anyway, but it's just a lot of boilerplate. But I still basically do that when I do C-sharp-based development, because even though that's a lot of boilerplate, I still feel the benefit that I get out of it outweighs the work of actually having to do that. And another thing I also started to do a lot in C-sharp after I started to look into F-sharp was that I more and more defined my interfaces so that they only had basically one method which basically means that an interface is just sort of equivalent to a function, because if an interface only has one method, and uh, it's sort of just like a function, basically. And I know in C-sharp these days, you can actually just pass functions around as well, you know, as delegates. But it's just, I'm happy to pass functions around in functional programming, but it so still doesn't really feel right to me in object-oriented programming. So I'd often define an interface, but just have one method on that interface. And that's basically the equivalent of a function then. So that's basically, you know, that's been my approach to C-sharp development for the last many years now. So it's a very functional style of, of C-sharp, if you will. But my experience with that is when other people see that, it's a little bit unusual for them, but then they pretty soon get the hang of looking at my C-sharp code and then they stop complaining about it. And what I often see is that people actually start adopting that because they can see the benefit of, of doing those things. So that's sort of the F-sharp influence back to C-sharp. So you also asked about, okay, so what did I pick up from Haskell that I can start to backport into to F-sharp, for example, now? And one of the things that I did recently was that I um, I took a little demo that I've made in F-sharp 
that tries to demonstrate how you can actually write, you know, your normal boring line of business enterprise application. So how can you compose, you know, functions together so you can actually talk to a database and all of those things that people actually need to do. And I was wondering, is it actually really functional or is there something that's not really quite there yet? So I wanted to port that to Haskell because I thought that, you know, if I can port this to Haskell, uh, it probably means that my F-sharp solution is pretty good. And it turned out that I could port a lot of it to Haskell, but there are things that I actually couldn't do in Haskell, which made me, you know, reconsider my approach for how I actually um, compose the functions together. Because, you know, in Haskell, you can't do, you can't mix impure functions into pure functions. And that's basically what I had, you know, accidentally done in F-sharp because, you know, F-sharp allows you to mix impure stuff into your pure stuff. And that makes the pure stuff impure as well. But the type system and the compiler doesn't really tell you that you're doing that. But Haskell will not let you mix impure stuff into your pure functions. So that made me rethink how I compose functions. And basically, to make a long story short, what I figured out then is that every time you want to do when people ask about, you know, how to how do you compose things? How do you read from a database? Often what they're thinking about is dependency injection. So they say, well, how do I call the database from inside of my function? And that's what you can't do in Haskell because that would be an impure operation. Uh, but what you can do is you can you can sort of pretend that if you had made that database query, then you have a value that you got from that database query, and then you can pass that as a function. So that ties into something else that's sort of interesting. There's a book about unit testing patterns called X-Unit Test Patterns by uh, Gerard Massaros. It's back from, I think it's almost 10 years old now. It's, it's a big 700 pages book. But one of the things it talks about is it tries to explain this whole idea about mocks and stops and so on. So it says, well, in object-oriented design, you have two types of input. You have di direct input and indirect input. And you also have two types of output. You have direct output and indirect output. Indirect input is if you do a dependency injection and then you call a method on an injected object and then you get some extra input from that method call. That's indirect input. And you can also write, for example, you can write to a database through dependency injection and that's sort of indirect output. And it turns out that you can always restructure your functions so that instead of doing indirect input or indirect output, you can just take those things that are indirect input and just make it direct input instead by redesigning your function. And that means that, yes, you need to do the database interaction before you call your pure function, but now you can call your pure function with that direct input instead. And instead of having indirect output from the function, again, you just return a value from the function, and then you can always use that value to save it into a database if you want to do that. And I think the reason you don't see people do that in Java or C Sharp is because you don't have some types. You don't have discriminated unions in C Sharp or on Java. So it means that you can't just imagine that you query the database because sometimes the database might actually not be there, whatever. And it's really, really difficult to, to model that thing either being there or not being there. It's pretty difficult to model that in C Sharp, for example. It's trivial to do in Haskell or in F Sharp because that's just a maybe or an option. So often you can say, you pretend that we queried the database and we can model what we got back from the database with a maybe, for example, and you, then we can just pass a maybe as a direct input into a function, and then that function is pure. I don't know if that makes made sense at all, but that's, that's some of the things that I'm beginning to see. You know, Haskell forced me to think about everything needs to be direct input, direct output, because otherwise functions aren't pure. 
and F sharp didn't really force me to think in that in those terms. But now that you know I've started to see how to model things in Haskell, I'm beginning to model my F sharp code that way as well. So not really doing F sharpish dependency injection at all, but just composing functions together, clicking them together, if you will. That's a long and rambling answer to your question, but I hope that it sort of made sense anyway. <laughs> I think it made sense because I think that aligns with some of the other stuff that I've heard about. If you want to write to a database, you don't actually pass in the database. You write, you pass in a function that handles the writing in the, the database. And because you could always just pass in another function that just appends it to a list and whether or not that's the database or not, it's essentially your broker, your abstraction of your persistence mechanism, whatever it is. So it could write to a list and append to a list and just hold a list in. And then you could, for testing, you could essentially read out that list that was then done over a closure or something instead of actually writing to the database. So there's a little bit of that going on. So it makes sense that you're actually passing in a proxy or bridge or an adapter or whatever that becomes your IO monad in the Haskell case, right? Yeah, what, what actually happens is not that I'm passing in. So that's what I did in F-sharp. I just passed in a function. And then I said, well, in the production composition, that function is actually something that, for example, reads from a table in a database. But you can't do that in Haskell because the signature of that function needs to return IO of whatever it is that you want out of the database. So that changes the type signature of now that function is going to be impure. And if you pass that function into a pure function, you can't, well, you can you can do that, but you can't get the value out of the IO monad because you are in a pure context and you can't get impure stuff out of a pure context in, in Haskell. So what you need to do instead is you need to, to compose things differently. So you say, outside of my pure function, I'm going to read from the database and that's going to give me a result back. And I can now pass that result as direct input into my pure function. And that pure function is going to return a value and now I can take that value and decide if that's an either, for example, I can say, well, if that's left, I'm not going to do anything. But if it returns right, I can take the value out of the right thing and then I can write that back back into the database. OK, so so I, I just managed to say right with and without a W in the same sentence. So that was probably pretty confusing, but <laughs> I hope that made, made sense anyway. <laughs> I think I get it now because I think I was just that one step removed without actually dealing with the types of an actual IO monad. And something that checks to enforce it as well that says, okay, no, this thing's pure or impure. Right. And that was really what surprised me when I started looking into trying to port my F-sharp stuff to Haskell. Then it turned out, hey, I actually didn't realize this, but Haskell forces me to think about those things. But I could take my Haskell solution then and I could backport it into F-sharp. And then now I have F-sharp that is more pure than it was before. <laughs> so that was it. That was kind of an interesting exercise. And I did do a blog post write-up about that, by the way, if, if the listeners are interested in actually seeing the details of that. And we can find that and include that in the show notes. So touching back on your backporting into C-sharp, one of the things I know you try and make a little bit of stink about in that community and some of the F-sharp community is raising that awareness, getting people to look at F-sharp. And you've got some plural site courses, so I don't know how much of this fits in with some of that stuff. But what have you found with the approach of introducing these concepts and getting people to start taking a serious look? Is it just you do that C sharp, you let them say, oh, okay, I think I got it, and start adopting that and then go out and say, okay, if you like that, let me show you something really cool. Or is it 
what's your strategy? Is it because I've heard some people talk about I'm going to introduce property based testing and you will write test unit tests in F sharp. And now we've got property based testing versus here's some translations. How do you go about doing this and any recommendations you found for essentially evangelizing this to people who haven't? Right. So in my experience, anyway, is that evangelizing works pretty well at an impersonal level in the sense that, you know, I do, I don't know if you want to call it evangelizing, but I do share all my love for F-sharp and functional programming on my blog, for example, and I talk about it on podcasts and I do conference talks about all the things that I think are wonderful about F-sharp and these other things that I learn along the way. Because everyone can always just self-select into listening to me rambling about those things, or they can just tune out of it if they don't care. And I found that to be a pretty good approach to actually talking about all the wonderful things. When I'm with a client, for example, and they're paying me to help them with something, I'm much more conservative in what I'm trying to make them do in the sense that normally I don't go into a client and try to sell them F sharp if that's not what they want me to help them with. Often, you know, my clients just want me to help them with some basic modeling of stuff. And often they read my book about dependency injection and they want to help just some help with loosely coupled systems or whatever that is. And if I'm not there to teach them about F sharp, I try not to do that. And often people will have read a couple of my blog posts or whatever. So they start to just inquire anyway over lunch or whatever, and then I'll tell them. But I think that trying to force something upon people if they're not ready for that, it's not really going to be productive anyway. So basically, anyone hearing this can safely hire me <laughs> and uh, not be afraid that I'm trying to make them something that they're not comfortable with. Because basically, I find that if people want to do functional programming, they'll come and ask me and then I'll help them with that. But if they're not interested, then, you know, I can't make them interested. But what I find with F Sharp, for example, one of the things that are, that are interesting with F Sharp is that because it's, it running, it's, run, it's running on .NET as well, once people start being interested in F Sharp, it's pretty easy to just say, well, okay, we'll just introduce a little library over here in your overall C Sharp code base. We'll just have a little F Sharp over here and your C Sharp code can call that and we can grow it from there, if you will. And what often happens, once people have started looking into these things, it spreads from there. Um, so what often happens is that once people see what it's like working with F-sharp, uh, they don't really want to go back to C-sharp. That's my general um, experience with that. That's what I am hearing from past clients of mine. That If I planted a little F-sharp seed in, in a company, then I come back two years later, I will see that that seed has grown into something that's much stronger all by itself. So it's not overnight success or anything, but my experience with F-sharp is that once people start doing that, it grows from there. And that was kind of what I was wondering was, I didn't figure it was going in and saying, look, I'm going to slam it down. We're doing F-sharp. You're hiring me. <laughs> not at all. We're thrown over the tables. But the strategies of just planting that seed of saying, okay, here's some stuff that might actually set the way, pave the way that people could apply if they're listening to this. They've already got a semi-interest in F-sharp and it's like, okay, so what are some of these things that people have found that is that seed that they decide to go plant in water and tend to and weed so people can plant the seed in their own companies or whatever and kind of like introduce this idea and have it slowly propagate and say, you know what? Right now we're .NET, we don't have F-sharp, or right now we're Java, we don't have Scala or Clojure or whatever it is. What are some of those things that you found that helps trigger that seed that people actually want to start saying, okay, I think I start to see something? 
Right, right. So my experience is probably a little bit different than what other people report. But what I've seen happening, for example, is that I worked with a client a couple of years ago that had some pretty complicated stuff going on. And at one time, we needed to match two different things together. Basically, they had like a table, you know, like a matrix of features that they needed to implement. And, and it's sort of like you basically had to fill out the entire combination of two different dimensions saying, well, we have nine different options out of one dimension and you have five different options out of another dimension. So basically, you could, you could draw a matrix or a table of that. And basically, we need to fill out almost all the combinations there. And each combination needs to do something slightly different than the other combinations. So we were thinking about how to do this in C-Sharp, and I couldn't really think of a good way of modeling that in C-Sharp in a way that was type safe in the sense that we wanted to be sure that we actually covered all the combinations. So I just said to the other people on the team, I said, well, if we just did a very, very small F-Sharp code base, we could model those two dimensions as two different discriminated unions. And then we could just write a couple of functions that made sure that we could do pattern matching on each of these discriminated union cases, because then the compiler would actually enforce that we actually deal with all the possible combinations of those two discriminated unions. And that would probably be like 30, that turned out to be like 30, 30 lines of code. And we could expose all of that so that it just looked like a normal object-oriented interface, because, you know, if Sharp can do that as well. So as I said, well, we could probably do that, and it, it's going to look like an object-oriented interface from the from all of your C-sharp code. And it's, we're not really going to do any logic. We're just going to do that combination of those two dimensions and making sure that that actually compiles and we have all bases covered, if you will. And that's going to be those 30 lines of code. And people looked at that and said, well, okay, that, that seems like a pretty good plan. So that's what we did. And everyone bought into that. That was actually a pretty good idea because it basically just looked like, you know, it didn't really look like, like code at all. It just looked like some declarative stuff basically it looked like a DSL. So we did that and we plugged that in. And then we, you know, at the time pretty much forgot about it. And I went on and, and did other stuff for other customers after that. And then I got to talk to one of the developers from that company a couple of months ago. And he said, well, that little thing that you planted there, it actually just grows and grows and grows because they're, they're learning that that's actually a pretty good way of modeling all those complex interchanges or, you know, all those combinations between things. So those 30 lines of F-sharp code that I originally planted there and, and just left, that's really growing into something that not only that it's growing for them, but they're actually very happy about that because they find that to be a very expressive way of being able to state how things actually compose and how they combine. And they can always be sure that they cover all the possible combinations. And that's very valuable for them. So that's what I really find very interesting about F-sharp and also about the Haskell type system is this whole possibility or that whole option of being able to model things on dimensions that you can't really model. So again, I'm not even sure this is a functional programming thing or it's just a language thing, but this whole idea about having a discriminated union or some type or whatever you call it in different languages, it's funny that you don't have that in C-sharp or in Java because I don't really see that there's anything in the language that ought to prevent you from doing that. And, you know, again, in, in F-sharp, for example, it, it basically it piles down to an object hierarchy anyway, but the compiler just knows that that object hierarchy is finite instead of being uh, infinitely extensible. Uh, but that's basically what, what it does. So it's possible to have that running in an object-oriented framework. So why those object-oriented languages don't do that is really beyond me. I'm really wondering why they don't do that. But basically, in C-sharp, you only have one dimension on which you can model your things, and that's the product type 
dimension if we're talking about algebraic data types. But then, you know, in, in F-sharp and, or in Haskell and other functional languages, you have another dimension because not only can you do product types, you can also do some types. And that means you all, now you have, you know, an option of saying, well, a type can be either this or that or that. And why you're not really able to do that in C-sharp is really beyond me, but I'm not familiar with any object-oriented languages that do that. But the ability to do those things declaratively instead of having a lot of runtimes and checks is what I think is really valuable in, in terms of modeling what a business logic actually looks like. Because now you can start to think about, okay, what are the types looking like? What are the options here? How do things vary? Yeah, so that was a long answer as well. <laughs> so we're getting towards the end of time. I do want to cover a little bit about your plural site courses and at least outline what you've got there. But is there anything else that we haven't covered yet that we need to cover? Oh, man. So one of the things that I do in my plural site courses is that I actually do, um, I give you one of the courses is an introduction to property-based testing with FS Check, which is a wonderful library in F-sharp. And I have other courses where I also go into that. So I have a course on type-driven development, as, as it's called. It's not as type-driven development as the Idris thing, obviously, but um, as type-driven as you can do it in F-sharp anyway. So basically, what I'm trying to do is I'm trying to teach people how to do test-driven development, how to do property-based development, how to just design and think about software design with F-sharp. Basically, I don't have any pluralsight courses on Haskell. I, I don't feel that I know enough about Haskell yet to actually teach it, but I think it's fun to look into. So if people want to check that out there, I have four pluralsight courses on F-sharp. I'm also giving a two-day workshop at NTC in Sydney that is about outside-end test-driven development and property-based testing. And I'm probably going to give that somewhere in Europe later this year as well. So that's that's other things. But otherwise, you know, you can always just subscribe to my blog and see what's up. So is there anything we haven't covered that we need to make mention to? <laughs> so, you know, that's one of those questions where as soon as we say goodbye, I think about a ton of things that we should also have talked about. But right now, I can't really think of anything. So um, I think we probably have it pretty well covered now. And I'm sure we can get you back on in the future as you continue going on and you start digging more into Haskell and Idris and whatever else goes on. And we can share back and circle back around and, and touch base on what you've learned since then and how your thinking has changed since... Yeah, that would be interesting. Yeah, I'm just starting looking into closure at the moment because one of the things that I really, I'm always a little bit afraid that I'm painting myself into a corner in the sense that I've been pursuing this thing about statically typed languages for a long time, you know, going from C-sharp, which is sort of statically typed to F-sharp, which is, you know, has more options or they can do more with that static typing and so on. So I'm a little bit concerned that I don't really understand what's happening over on the dynamic side. And people really are loving closure. So I, I thought, thought that, you know, I need to understand what's going on there as well. So that's actually what I'm, what I'm starting doing at the moment, just to, to figure out, you know, what's happening on the other side. And, um, who knows? Maybe I'll like it, but I can't tell you yet. Yet. So that's for a year from now, I think. <laughs> Sounds good. So is there anything you want to plug? We can kind of mention your portal site courses. You mentioned your, a couple of the upcoming appearances. Is there anything that we haven't left or? Just any other projects you want to make sure people know about, go check out, or recommendations in general? Right. Well, so um, recommendations. I, I think if people are interested, the best thing is probably just to subscribe to my blog or just you know subscribe to, to Twitter. I'm on Twitter as well. Uh, so my blog has lots of further contact information, but Twitter is where I'm most active, like just like anyone else. 
So that's probably the best place to be if you want to have you know more announcements from me uh, if I figure something else that I want to, to share. But I do actually blog regularly. So sometimes it's also about C-sharp and object-oriented development, but it's becoming more and more about functional programming these days. So I don't really know that I have a lot of other things to, to share right now apart from the upcoming workshops and NDC in, in Sydney. But yeah, if you want to see announcements, then, then Twitter is probably the best place to, to follow me. Okay, so Twitter and the blog for people to follow you, and I'll get those links in the show notes as well. Sounds good. Thank you, Jane. Thank you to David Pelcher for the logo. And once again, thank you, Mark, for taking your time to join me today. It was a pleasure talking with you. Yeah, pleasure. Thank you for having me. And thanks for listening. As you said, you've been listening for a while, so thanks for listening as well. And thank you for coming on and taking your turn to be a guest. Thank you. Until next time, this has been Functional Geekery.